You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Marley, thank you so much for joining me on the Australian Finance Podcast today. Thank you for having me, Kate. It's awesome to be here. Yes. So we're talking about a pretty, well, interesting for me. I'm not sure if interesting for everybody else, but (laughs) we're talking about wills and estates today, which we've actually had quite a few listener requests for. And I have a real live lawyer on the episode today to give you the lowdown on all of it. Yes. Yes. It's awesome. Very good. Wills and estates. It's interesting to me at least. (laughs) Yeah. And you've been working in this area for quite a while now, haven't you? About five years. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. And um, we'll have a call to action at the end so everyone can find out about Marley and Ness Legal if they (laughs) want to learn more. But why don't we just dive in? So Marley, why do you think that it's so important to talk about wills and all of that stuff that we don't really like to talk about? Yeah, it can be a little bit uncomfortable to talk about, but it is super important. Basically, if you're an adult and you have any assets or children, including things like super or life insurance, you should have an estate plan in place. So that includes your will and other documents like powers of attorney and everything like that. So most people, I guess, kick it into gear when they've got children or they've just purchased their their first home. But really, we see it as the kindest thing you could do for the people that you leave behind. And if you're earning an income, you should probably have a will. Mm, I can imagine that most people have some sort of assets, whether it's their super when they pass away. And just just leaving it without a will must get pretty messy. Absolutely. It can definitely make things messy. It can make things expensive and time-consuming for your family and your, and your loved ones. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely definitely important to have it in place. Yeah. So is there an age where you would suggest listeners start thinking about getting a will or is it just 
as soon as you turn 18 or what's the story there? Look, a lot of my clients are, um, I suppose, young families, young adults, like late 20s, early 30s, probably just starting to have kids or have just bought a home. But I have had clients who are in their early 20s before perhaps they've come into an inheritance or uh, something like that, or they do have significant superannuation, started earning um, money at a, at a young age. So not like a specific set age, but yeah, I would definitely say 20s is a, is a great place to start. Yeah. And I think like some people even have like insurance inside their super. So there could be quite a substantial life insurance payout that you don't even realize is there when you might be thinking, Hey, I don't have any assets to give my family. Totally. Totally. I mean, you could just one day actually read the super statement that comes in the mail or through email and look at it and think, Oh wow. If something happens to me, there's actually like 150 K wrapped up in this that I didn't know about. (laughs) And how often should you, if you do have a will, how often should you get it reviewed? I recommend every three to five years, at least have a read of it. Things like appointing executors and guardians, that might need to be something that you update often, especially as your children grow older or as the people that you've appointed grow older. If you've appointed a parent, one of your parents in there for something, um, that might need to be something that's changed. Yeah, I guess over the 18 years of a a child's life, uh, a lot can change there and you don't necessarily want the same person that you appointed when they were born at the age of 15. Exactly. And once you have this document, where's the best place to store it? I know some people like to keep things in safes. Do you do you give it to the lawyer? Because I know in the movies they always go, oh, the lawyer has the will and last testament and <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, if you do your will through a law firm, which is definitely recommended, most law firms will have a safe custody holding, which we call a deeds registry, and you can keep all of your original documents in there. We have fireproof <laughs> safes where we keep all of our original documents. And if you choose to keep it at home, which some people do, if you've got a safe at home, that's a great option. Otherwise, wherever you keep your important documents at home, like your passports and birth certificates and things like that. And the main thing is that your family know where to find it if something happens to you. So, um, yeah, keeping it, you know, I don't know, in the third drawer down with other random things in your house may not be the best option, but if that's where you keep your important stuff, then definitely keep it there. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes I find it so antiquated that this is such an important document and you have to have this original on a piece of paper. And just in such a, in our digital age, it just seems really odd that it's still like that. I know it's still very old school in that sense, in having that original document. I mean, there's been definitely certain circumstances, even in the last few years with things like Black Saturday and everything like that, where tragedies were people's original documents have been unfortunately destroyed. So it is possible to prove a copy of a will, but it's a lot more complicated. So definitely keep it, keep the original in a safe place. Yeah, definitely. All right. So if we dive in a little bit deeper into all of the nitty gritty about wills, thinking about what are the, some of the things we need to start thinking about, if we are ready to get a will, what are all those different things that go into a will that we need to start thinking about? Yeah. So one thing, if you've got children, is guardianship of your children. So you need to appoint someone that you trust to raise your kids in the same way you would like to raise them. Someone that shares a similar parenting style to you, that has similar values and beliefs. And do they have a good relationship with your children? Do they live locally? You may not want your children to need to relocate if you've got your favorite sibling is living in a different state to you. Is that the best thing for your children? 
guardianship in wills isn't super watertight because you have a whole different range of things that can come into play there. But the person you appoint may not be the person the kids live with, but it's the person that will decide where the kids live and what's best for them. So that would be one thing to think about. The second thing would be your executor. That's the person who will do everything for you, which I'm sure we'll go into more detail about later. Your assets and liabilities and what you'd like to happen with those various assets. Lots of people just like to work into percentages and say, I give everything to my spouse or my children or my sister. But other people that especially that don't have dependents like to do different things with certain assets. Here in Australia, we have We're lucky enough to have testamentary freedom. So you could basically leave your entire estate to the Lost Dogs Home if you want to. Lots of people like to leave charitable gifts as well, maybe leaving a token amount to a favourite charity before leaving everything else to, to other people as well. Yeah, I think that's probably something my listeners are very interested in in terms of assets. And if if we do have some some investments, some shares, maybe got some cash managed funds, like can you specify specific things? Like I want the money in this managed fund to go to this person. I want my BHP shares to go to someone else. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely can. The only thing to keep in mind with that is it may need to be updated more regularly, especially if you change investments or sell shares, purchase shares and so on, because then you run the risk of giving something to someone that then doesn't exist anymore. So yeah, but lots of people do leave, you know, I leave all of my shares to this person, Um, especially in like blended family circumstances. If you're looking to provide for say a spouse and children of a previous relationship to make sure that all the people in your life are, are getting what um, what you think they should. Yeah, I can imagine once you start having blended families, it can get quite complicated. And are there any rules on who you leave things to there? Like I said earlier, we do have testamentary freedom in Australia. But when it comes to blended families and things, it can get quite complex. Um, most people want to balance the needs of, say, a new spouse and children from a previous relationship. And you have an obligation to provide for certain people in the eyes of the court. So if a claim were to come up. So yeah, you're morally obliged to provide for a spouse and children as well. Yeah. Okay. So there are some limitations. If you have a family, you can't just go and leave it (laughs) all to some other charity. I mean, you could, but you're potentially leaving your, um, your executor and your family with a bit of a headache once you pass away. Yeah. Once we've got, so we've got thought about some of the things we might include in a will. The other thing I noticed your firm does that I hadn't really seen talked about much is having that digital asset register because We've got all of these digital profiles, we've got photos, we've got, maybe we've got cryptocurrencies. Like how do we, can we give these to someone and how do we sort of account for all of this? Yeah, totally. So I guess digital assets are so important and it is often overlooked, I find. If you've got a phone, if you've got an email account, if you've got Netflix, you've got digital assets. I guess the best way to deal with digital assets is firstly to have a clause in your will that actually deals with them. And secondly, a digital assets register to accompany that. So in your digital assets register, you'd say things like what you want to happen to your Facebook account, what you want to happen to your cryptocurrency, who should be looking and checking your emails and all kinds of things like that. In appointing an executor, you can also appoint a separate digital assets register. So you might say, I really want to appoint my mum as my executor, but mum's got no idea about digital things. So I'm going to appoint my brother to look after that side of things. 
And everything's also subject to all the terms and conditions of individual providers as well. You know, you might say, I leave my expensive iTunes library worth $10,000 to my best friend, but I don't know if iTunes will allow you to do that. So there's lots of different, yeah, different things that can, can crop up there. But the main things to consider with digital assets is sentimental value, like photos of, of your family, if you've got it on a Dropbox or something, financial value, certainly cryptocurrency, like, like you mentioned earlier, and you know maybe even PayPal accounts and anywhere that you have important information stored online. Yeah, because I can imagine you might want to give your financial stuff to a family member, but possibly there might be something on your Facebook page you don't want them to be able to just trawl through your Facebook messages. So you'd probably want some control over that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And with Facebook, for example, you can appoint someone actually through the settings part of Facebook to be your your nominated person if something happens to you. So you can do it actually manually through Facebook as well, but there's lots of different ways. Yeah, possibly more providers will start doing that. I mean, I haven't thought about who gets the Audible library. I don't even know if you can (laughs) transfer it like that. Exactly. And I find that most, I did, did do a little bit of research into this a couple of years ago and Facebook, Instagram, they all have things that you can do. Gmail have an inactive user account. There's lots of different things. And and also a lot of those providers really respect the privacy of their users as well. So you may not be able to just access someone's Facebook messages and and things like that, um, depending on the terms and conditions at the time. I don't think any of us, I mean, I, when I wrote, when I got my will drawn up five or six years ago now, I definitely hadn't considered any of those social media sites or Instagram pages or anything like that, which, Yeah. yeah, it's definitely something to think about. Absolutely. Yeah. And the next question I wanted to talk about, which is often a hot topic whenever wills gets brought up in the news or anything like that, is about DIY will kits and those kits you can buy from the post office or sort of get off the internet for $99 or the like. And often the words around it is like, that is really dangerous to do. And they just, I think, I don't know if this is true or not, but often people say they don't hold up in court. What are your thoughts on DIY will kits? Look, if you're making a will, you're making it because you want it to work and you want to make the whole thing less stressful for your family. If you go down the DIY path, you're running a risk that that's not going to happen. I guess when people come into our office, they often think about how they think their will will look like, but we ask so many questions to get a full and proper understanding of everything going on in your life, your family structure, your asset structure, what kind of estate plan is actually best for you. So often the document that you think you're going to walk away with will look completely document uh, completely different to the document you end up with. With homemade wills or DIY wills, they haven't really been made in part of a, a broader conversation actually about estate planning. They may not deal with property adequately. They may use incorrect language resulting in all kinds of trouble down the path when you're trying to prove the will. Um, they may not be signed properly. Um, we've got very strict um, guidelines as to or rules as to how wills needs to be, need to be signed in Victoria to witnesses over 18, same pen, can't look tampered with. They have to sign at the bottom of every page. The list goes on. Will kits are slightly better than doing it yourself only because they provide some guidance, but they're not custom to you. They're not custom to your your needs and, and your estate plan and, and your personal circumstances. Yeah. So you can't just write um, on a piece of paper, I want to leave everyone t- everything to my best friend and that, that won't work. 
I mean, you could. It is possible to prove what we call informal wills um, or invalid wills. We can prove them as informal wills, but the process of in, um, of proving a will like that is so much more complicated. It's way more expensive. It's way more time consuming. So just having it done properly um, just saves all of that stress and heartache. I'm thinking one of the reasons people probably are going to those DIY kits is maybe because they can't afford a lawyer. What would you suggest people do in that situation? I think that a will is really an investment. So if it's something that you invest in um, and get it right, um, hopefully you won't need to update it. If you get it done properly, we provide for a lot of contingencies in our documents. So we don't just plan for what happens if something happens to you. We also plan for what happens if someone something happens to your next of kin, your spouse, your children, and so on. So if it's definitely not possible, then I would definitely say the will kit route is more preferred to just doing it yourself at home. So lawyer, DIY kit, informal will. Yeah. yeah. In order of preference. <laughs> yes. Okay, great. And um, so if you, um, for some reason, sadly die tomorrow and you don't have a will or you used a DIY kit and it's deemed to be invalid, what happens then? Like, where does the money go? Does it just go to the government or? No, common misconception. So that's the worst, worst, worst case scenario. If you die without a will um, or without a valid will, you die what we call intestate. And there are formulas in each state that determine how your estate is actually distributed and who it goes to. So if you've got a spouse, if you've got children, if you've got the blended family situation we spoke about earlier, if you don't have any of those people, if you've got parents, siblings, and so on, it really, the, the basically the court's will for you provides for a lot of different circumstances. So I think you'd be looking at nieces and nephews before going to the government. But you run the risk of it not getting to who you want it to get to. You run the risk of, as well, not knowing who's going to be managing everything for you. So if you pass without a will, instead of having an executor, you have what we call an administrator. So you won't get a say over who that person is. So it just it just becomes messy and, and complicated. Yeah, I'm guessing it can take probably quite a while for the court system to work all of that out. Once you've got your application together, it doesn't take, it actually is a little bit quicker than having it with a will Um, because with the new system in Victoria anyway, we have, uh, it's all done electronically now and then you just have to post the will in. If the court is satisfied with the application, they'll make it quite quickly, but it's the work before actually applying for probate or letters of administration that takes the longest. And if you don't have a will, that's where it takes and chews up a lot of time. Whereas if you have a will, it makes that process much more streamlined. Yeah. Yeah. And is it different? I mean, you've mentioned Victoria a few times. Is doing a will different in every state? Yeah. 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 It can be. So, and probate um, and administration are different state by state as well. Is it based on the state the person passes away in or lives in or got the will drawn up in? Or Actually, where your assets are is oh. um, is really the, the telltale sign. So if you've got, say, a property in Victoria and then a property in Queensland, you'll need to get what we call a reseal of probate. So you would get probate in Victoria to deal with your Victorian assets and then you'll have to ship everything over to, to the Queensland Supreme Court to get it restamped in Queensland to allow you to deal with your Queensland assets. That sounds a little painful. <laughs> it can be, but it, it's possible. <laughs> yeah. And what if, because a lot of my listeners probably don't have property, um, what if you've just got shares, maybe yeah, managed funds, cash in the bank account? Usually then we would just get probate where you live at the time. Shares and bank accounts 
um, the court doesn't mind too much if they're if they're interstate. We were mentioned earlier when you get to pick who's your executor. What is the role of an executor to start with? So it's a pretty big job, I won't lie. It's the person that does everything for you. So from planning your funeral, calling in your assets, selling property, closing bank accounts, paying off liabilities, Mm. and then they also become your trustee and they look after funds for any minor beneficiaries like children until they come of age. Sounds like a lot of of job. Do they get paid for that? They can get paid for that if your will provides provision for a executor's commission. So executor's commission can be awarded in one of three ways. Firstly, if the will has a, has a clause that allows it. Secondly, if the executor seeks consent from all beneficiaries over 18. And lastly, if they make application to the court. And the wording is pains and troubles that it um, causes them in dealing with the estate. So the more painful and troublesome your estate is, uh, the more they're likely to, to get out of it, but it's never more than 5%. Okay. And who should you appoint as your executor, considering how big of a job it is? Someone that you trust implicitly, someone who is financially savvy. I recommend someone who's local where possible, just because logistically dealing with uh, an executor interstate or or overseas can be quite difficult and the risk of losing documents is high. Yeah, someone responsible. That's that's the main criteria. Okay. And you probably should ask them if they're happy to be your executor, why you're still alive? Yes, yes, definitely have the chat with them. It just will make things a lot easier so that they're not surprised when they read your will or if someone else reads your will. Uh, you can also appoint joint executors. So if you've got, you know, say a, a friend who maybe is like a, a financial planner or a, or a lawyer and you want to appoint them with one of your kids, um, that's quite a common thing. Just appoint people that get along with each other. That can otherwise cause a lot of heartache down the track. And also someone that will get along with the guardian of your children because that's sort of a working role together. Um, your guardian sort of will may need funds for school fees and bits and pieces like that and will have to communicate with your executor to get an advance of that child's inheritance to pay for those types of things, which is totally doable under a will and, and very, very common. It could be the same person, but if it's not the same person, they should at least be able to work well together. And so if someone approached me and said, can I be their executor? What should I think about before just saying, yeah, sure? Um, I would think about maybe their their family circumstances. Think about if you can foresee any I don't know, issues in the future <laughs> if they passed away and think about if how, how close you feel to that person. Think about what they're um, you know, have they been open to you about their their assets and liabilities? Would you, if something happened to them, would you know where who they bank with or um, who their insurance is with? Um, think about things like you're going to have to call up you know, um, Vic Roads to cancel registration on cars and and um, just those those little things that people don't think about. Calling up the water authority and the council to let them know that they've passed away. Mail redirections, all of those types of things come into it. Yeah, it does it does seem a lot when you think about it like that. Yeah, and when people appoint a loved one, like a spouse or a child or another family member, often they do it just because of, you know, they love the person and they do it out of the kindness of their heart. If you are appointing someone as your executor who's not a beneficiary of your estate, that's when I would definitely start to think about executor's commission to say thank you for for acting in that role and appreciating that they're not receiving anything out of your estate. Yeah, because I can imagine if someone's um, lived a very 
wonderful life and they've gotten to quite an age and they've got a lot of different, they might have a self-managed super fund and they've got different properties and different assets. Maybe they've got a trust and a company. It, it could be a lot, a lot of work, like many months of work to do all that. Can you get a third party? Is there like companies that do executive services? Yeah, definitely. So if if you didn't want to appoint a family member or a friend or something like that, some law firms will act as executor for you. So a lot of a lot of firms take that on. Otherwise, state trustees, Australian Unity, there's lots of different places out there that will do it. Just keep in mind that they charge a significant commission for doing that. So if that's important to you, then you may choose, may wish to choose someone else. Okay. So it's a bit more than pains and troubles there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And so I think another really interesting question I wanted to talk about is often the the drama you see after someone passes away and a family or an ex-wife or a daughter-in-law contests the will. And sometimes we have some very high profile cases in Australia about that. What are the rules around that? Can anyone do it? And how do you do it if you feel like you've been left out of a will? How How would you go about contesting it? Yeah. So, I mean, this differs state to state as well, but in Victoria, you need to firstly be an eligible person um, under the Administration and Probate Act. And if you are, you need to be able to prove firstly that the deceased person had a moral obligation to provide for you. Generally, children, spouses and so on um, can fulfill that criteria. Secondly, that you have a financial need. And thirdly, that the deceased will didn't adequately provide for you. Um, So those are the main things that you have to prove. You also need to be prepared to make full financial and sometimes health disclosure to be able to prove that you are in need, especially if we can't settle it outside of court. Very, very, a small amount of cases go all the way to a final hearing. Um, Most matters are settled at mediation or before court. But if it does go all the way to court, it's also a very expensive and time-consuming process. It can cost like 100k plus to contest a will if it doesn't get resolved early, plus sometimes the cost of the other parties as well. So in Victoria, we also have time limits. So you can only contest a will six months after the date of the grant of probate. So not six months from death, but six months from when probate is actually granted. So there's lots of different things that that come into it. But it is, you know, it is definitely possible. And it is something that's happening quite often. Mm-hmm. And so, so there is some limitations on who can actually contest the will. That's probably good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there are some limitations on it. So you can't just, um, if, you, if your next door neighbour passes away, you can't just knock on the door and <laughs> say, I, I used to give him lemons off my tree. So Yeah, yeah. And so most of this is dealt with outside of court. So you might, if you were a daughter and you got left out of the will and potentially you fulfilled those criteria, you could... Um, talk to the executor to discuss resolving this out of court? Exactly right. So you'd talk to the executor and hopefully try to negotiate a settlement. All beneficiaries would need to agree, if it, especially if it affects, affects their share. But otherwise, if it ends up in court, um, you sort of let a judge decide. But with that in mind, the court will usually ask for um, a mediation to occur before um, it goes any further. So usually most most matters will settle at mediation. Yeah, and I can imagine some of these get, I don't know if you've dealt with any in the courts, but get really <laughs> nasty. It probably splits families forever. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Um, I have always said that um, money and death do really horrible things to people, unfortunately, and often in a time of, of great stress. 
for, for individuals. So yeah, it can get super, super nasty. So that's again, why obtaining advice before going ahead and writing someone out of your will is, is invaluable really. Yeah. And so if you were, so you're right now, you know, you want to leave X person out of your will for whatever reason, is there a process you can go about to make that really clear and undisputable after your death? It's no way to make it undisputable because if that person's eligible, then they will or they can make a claim. But I personally like to put a clause in my wills to say that they have given a lot of thought and they still want to leave that person out. And I also get my clients to prepare basically like a letter of wishes for their executor to really set out the reasons why and go into a lot of detail about that because you won't be around to tell the court why you've chosen to leave X person out of your will. And I guess that's a little bit of evidence that that could support your argument in the event of a claim. Okay. So really being able to demonstrate that you you knew what you were doing, you weren't just pressured into it by another family member. Yeah. Not just saying things like I've left out my daughter because she was rude to me on Christmas 2019, but you know, maybe I haven't spoken to my daughter in 15 years and I've reached out to her and haven't had any contact with her and you know, really set out sort of the breakdown of the relationship there and why you think you don't have a moral obligation to provide for that person and also why you think that they don't have a financial need. Sometimes I have clients that come to me looking to provide children with a lesser share and it's not because of any, I guess, ill affection. It could just be because, oh, child A is a squillionaire and child B is struggling and I just want to even it out a little bit. So you can do that. You can leave different amounts to different kids and similar process. Yeah, totally, totally. And But we would just still do that that letter of wishes to make it clear so that child A doesn't come along and think that it was done in a negative light. Yeah, you always like took, took granny to the lawyers a month before her death. and <laughs> Lots of that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so when we're still alive, some of the documents that we can use, I know, powers of attorney, medical and personal, are you able to talk a little bit about what they are and when someone might need them? Totally. So the will is what comes into effect after you've passed away. And then you can get a range of powers of attorneys that come into effect while you're alive, but you may no longer have capacity to make decisions for yourself. So in Victoria, the ones that we have is the medical treatment decision maker. So that's who actually makes medical treatment decisions on your behalf if you can't. So it could be because you're in an accident or you're elderly or maybe you have dementia or something like that or you're terminally ill. And then we've got the other document, which is a financial and personal power of attorney. And that's wrapped up in one document in Victoria. And that's where we say things like who will make financial decisions like um, selling property or paying for just your everyday expenses with your money and personal decisions, things like where you live, who you live with, what services you have access to. So that could be moving into aged care or Meals on Wheels coming around to help you out, all of those types of things. So those are the two two um, documents that we have and collectively we would call that an estate plan. And you probably wouldn't need them when you're young, would you? Well, a thing that a lot of people say, but I tend to disagree, especially if you're someone that likes to travel a lot. Imagine getting stuck overseas or something like that, having a, a power of attorney back home, even if it's just mum and dad who are able to get on the phone and deal with things on your behalf. That's it's, it's super important. And um, even things like medical treatment, decision-making, you 
might have a really strict thing about what you want to happen if you were to get into an accident, like do not resuscitate or whatever whatever your wishes might be. And if you don't have that document, it goes to your next of kin. But if your next of kin's position on those types of things doesn't align with yours, you know, that's not a, a great way to, to have everything end up. Okay. So that actually could be something really beneficial for someone younger. It's not just for elderly people to put into place to ensure that your wishes are carried out while you're still alive as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and those powers of attorney documents are also useful for making sure that your children can be maintained if, if you're alive, but you've um, lost capacity, like a permanent disability or something like that. So definitely a few different things to think about there, which uh, we probably don't, we talk about them even less than wills, those kind of things. They're almost more important, I think, because you're actually alive. So appointing people in those positions is, is so important because that's affecting your, your day-to-day life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I probably need one. <laughs> <laughs> I know a good lawyer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll give you a call. Um, and the last thing I really wanted to dive into, and it's been in the news a lot recently, is about those binding death nominations in super and who gets the money when you pass away. So I was wondering if you have to talk a little bit about what those binding, non-binding death nominations are in your super fund and um, who you can leave it to and how often you should review it. Yeah, super is so, so important, especially if you think you've got no assets, you could have something tied up with your super. Um, And it has been in the news a lot lately. I'm sure we all know what we're referring to there. So with super, you can nominate a beneficiary just like you can through your will. So it could be your spouse, it could be your children. There are also nominations that can be invalid. So nominating someone that actually isn't a financial dependent on yours of yours could be invalid, which is where we recommend people nominate their estate or their legal personal representative instead. And that way your superannuation and any associated benefits with that can actually form part of your asset pool and flow through your will in however you'd like your will to be structured. So by doing a binding nomination, your super fund is bound by whoever um, you've appointed. And if you do a non-binding nomination or um, basically what happens in that case is the super fund has a little bit of wriggle room. You might have appointed one child, but they might choose to pay it to your spouse instead. So they're not bound by your decisions. And by having no nomination, the super fund has to basically do a fact-finding exercise to look at who all the potential beneficiaries are. um, And then the trustee of that super fund needs to make a decision. And that's a very, very time-consuming period for people's family to go through. So So it doesn't just automatically flow into the estate if you have nothing there. No, because if there's someone that's dependent on you that's actually should should receive it, then the super fund would rather pay it to that person than your estate. Yeah, definitely. And with the super nominations, they often lapse depending on your super fund. They can lapse every three years. So every three years you'll find you might get a letter from your super fund saying please update. So definitely do that. Or if possible, you can sometimes tick a box to say non-lapsing. But again, all super funds are different. Mm. And you'd have to do this for every single one of your super funds if you've got a few that you haven't consolidated. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I definitely, I think I even had some misconceptions about this. I just, I thought you could leave your binding death nomination to whoever you wanted, but um, recent events have shown me otherwise. Exactly, exactly. Which is a little scary that super funds have their own decision-making process when it comes to the money after death. Yeah, it's completely different to your will. Unless you say, I want my super to go into my estate, it's completely separate. And um, it can, I find that super actually causes a lot of heartache 
for a lot of clients if there is no nomination on there. So that's something I definitely recommend. If you again, if you, if you can't afford to get a will done, it's free to to print off uh, your binding death benefit form on your superannuation funds website. Yeah, and is it like is it the superannuations fund legal team that does their research process and decides who the money goes to? Yeah, it's like a death claim team and um, the trustee of the super fund makes the final decision. They have, again, depending on the fund, monthly meetings. So they'll review every case and then ask for more information. That's why it can take so long because they trickle feed you what they need in a lot of circumstances if you don't have a nomination. If you've got a nomination, it's quite easy. You fill out some forms, provide some ID and usually um, it's all fine. But if there's no nomination, they might say, okay, well, I want birth certificates of all of your children um, and just all kinds of different things. Yeah, I can imagine it would be quite difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so once you've sort of considered all these different things, I mean, what what would be your sort of top tips for someone who is thinking about getting some legal protection and what thinking about everything? What should they sort of think about first? They should think about, firstly, the people that they'd like to appoint in the different places, the different positions, that role of the executor is so important and also think about what their assets and liabilities are, what can be included in a will, what can't, joint assets, for example. So a husband and wife owning a property property jointly, you can't gift that in a will because it's not your sole your sole asset. Again, another common misconception. Those are the main things I think about, who, who you want to, to run the show, so to speak, and who you'd like to leave everything to. Awesome. And just before we wrap up, what what are some of the biggest issues you see with people with wills after people die? Like what are the main sort of contentious points? The the main few that have given me a headache over the last few months are ones where people um like the homemade wills, they're they're really they can be really hard to deal with. That's a big one. Other misconceptions are people just thinking that their their situation is simple. If someone says, I've got a simple situation on the phone, it's it's a red flag. You know it's not simple. Um, <laughs> so those those are the the main things. But yeah, the, those homemade wills are um uh, they're a bit scary. Um, and they provide a there's a lot of work in the in the background um, <laughs> that, that goes towards getting a grant of probate when that happens. Awesome. Was there anything else you wanted to say before we wrapped up here? I guess I'd just like to say again to reiterate having a will, having an estate plan in place is the kindest thing you can do for the people that you leave behind. And it just, it it can mean that things are so much more simple and streamlined for your loved ones, um, which I think is really important. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good way to end it. And if people want to learn a bit more about you, Mali, and Nest Legal and potentially want to discuss getting a will or a power of attorney or something else sorted, um, where should they go? Yeah, so our website, uh, nestlegal.com.au, we have a book a chat function on there so you can book a free chat, um, 10-minute chat with a lawyer to talk about any estate planning needs that you might have. And, yeah, at Nest we do wills and estates, conveyancing, family law, everything you need to start your nest. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, look, our, our main thing is to make things as easy for clients as possible. So, yeah, definitely feel free to feel free to give me a call if you'd like to chat further. Awesome. And I think if everyone's as friendly as you there, there's uh, nothing to stop people going and having a chat. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> all right. Well, Marley, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. And I hope all of our listeners got something out of this and have a few things to think about after this. Awesome. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at risk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.